0: Well, good morning. If you uh, have a Bible, let me encourage you to open to the book of Habakkuk. And you will find the book of Habakkuk on page 785 on your pew Bible. If you are, have your own Bible, you're on your own to find it. Uh, don't be discouraged to go to the table of contents uh, in order to find it. It is a hidden book here in the Old Testament. But uh, if you are visiting with us for the first time, let me just add my welcome. Um, I hope it has been made clear to you up to this point and will continue to be clear that we are uh, passionate about Jesus Christ and we uh, are passionate about uh, just declaring his love for his people, uh, his sacrificial love, and we want everyone to know him personally. And so whether you found us online, uh, through Facebook, or somebody brought you, just welcome and I hope you feel uh, welcomed here this morning. Um, one of the rhythms we've established throughout our kind of calendar and throughout the year is uh, is preaching through whole books of the Bible. Um, um, all different genres, um, Old Testament, New Testament, and it is our desire here at Grace, um, in line right with Acts 20, is to preach the whole counsel of God. And we think that is... Um, really well done when you go through an entire book of the bible verse by verse so it's not just up to me week after week to try and pick a passage and decide this is what we need but to just walk through a single book of the bible and show how this whole bible is unified and pointing to the person and work of jesus christ and so with that said uh this morning we begin with habakkuk and i'll explain why this little book um in a while but uh let me just begin with this um in any relationship, you know it's getting serious when you can truly act like yourself. And, and you're not constantly trying to show this kind of false front or, or someone that you, uh, that's not really you, but they just want, you want them to get you to like you. And so you, you realize that a serious relationship starts to form when you know you can be yourself in front of this person, right? regardless of what kind of relationship we are talking about. Um, okay, so think about the last time you went on a first date. When was the last time you were on a first date, all right? Maybe that was last week. Uh, maybe that was last decade. Uh, maybe that was before Vietnam, all right? I don't know when your last first date was But if you think back, you probably remember it, and you probably checked yourself in the mirror about 37 times, all right, in eight different mirrors, all right, because you know mirrors can be a little conflicting. And so um, that's just, you're overly attentive, you're dressed to impress, you're smelling like perfume or cologne that you probably paid way too much for, and everything you say on a first date is calculated. It is well thought out, it is measured, and you want, on this first date, to put your best foot forward, or what you think they think will be your best foot forward, and so you're not as quick to let the quirky, kind of weird tendencies that we all have to be shown yet, right? Like, not on date number one, it's just the way life is. Like, if you go out to dinner and you see a couple eating next to you, you can pretty well figure out if this is a first date or whether these these guys have been together for a while right like if they're on a first date they are so strung out they haven't blinked in like 45 minutes Uh, like they're overly caffeinated like their faces are so close together that they might be touching by the end of the meal Um, but you find a couple that's been together for a while and they're they're just they're more relaxed Right? They're not overly self-aware, they are comfortable, and you can tell because they're not being self-conscious uh, that, that this, these guys have probably been together for a while. And the reason is, I think across the board, uh, the longer and deeper the relationship, there is this growing freedom to just be yourself. And the fear of what they will think, it just doesn't dominate you anymore. So again, we're talking first date or a couple, but if you think about just you and your coworkers, you think about you and your boss, you think about friendships that you have, you think about your own family structure, there is a growing desire in all of us to get this relationship to a point where I can be myself without fear. And that is a beautiful place to be. um, Where you can even be a mess in the midst of a relationship. Um... And and so I want us to just think about that as we launch into this book of Habakkuk. It puts on full display the just complex, beautiful mess that often defines the relationship between God and his people and God's people with one another. And so um, I'll need to say this just up front. I'll say it once. It is of immense debate, heated debate, how you pronounce this book. All right? So there is generally Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, all right? Um, well, really, it's not a debate. If you say Habakkuk, you're just wrong, all right? It's just, it's not even uh, a debate. And so over the six weeks, you will hear me say Habakkuk about 350 times, all right? So I just want to lay that out up front. If that bothers you, um, sorry that I'm not sorry. We'll see you in six weeks, all right? Um, all right. <laughs> But this book, it's it's one of what is called the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And it is unique in that it is a dialogue. Right? It's not just um, God telling a person to turn around and go share with the uh, uh, nations of Israel or Judah. uh, But rather it is a prophet recording this vision of a dialogue that took place between him and, and God. And listen, it's a heavy book. Uh, the, the book starts, in fact, by saying that the following is an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, and the word used for oracle is the same word they used for burden, right? This contains a burden that had to be communicated to the people of Judah. And so listen, it is a weighty book. It's going to be a pretty weighty six weeks here for us at Grace, and it holds um, complex truths about God, complex truths about his work in the world. And so um, just up front, some of the major themes that we're going to see across the next six weeks are uh, the supremacy of God in all, over all things, even the hard things, especially the hard things, um, including judgment, and particularly judgment of the wicked. It talks about the hard-fought need for faithfulness in difficult times, the hard-fought need for faithfulness with difficult truth. It displays how evil always proves to be self-destructive. And ultimately, the book of Habakkuk it lays out this journey A journey of faith that I think on some level everybody can resonate with. It is a journey from expectation to confusion to doubt, and then finally to a firm kind of gritty trust in the character and nature of a good, just God. And so one of the many reasons I love the Bible is because a little book like Habakkuk is in it because it is gritty, it is weighty, it is agonizing at times, and I love it because it's real. Because listen, you walk through these doors, and you know what we realize? We realize life is gritty, and and life is weighty, and life is agonizing at times. And we would do well to see how the Holy Spirit inspired the inerrant word here to guide us in those moments when we're on that journey. So uh, this morning, we're just going to cover four verses, uh, four verses of chapter one. But before we dig in, and the reason why we're only doing four verses is because I think it's important that I provide some background for the book of Habakkuk. Like what is going on that then sparked this dialogue, which comes out of the gate swinging, right? Habakkuk is hot from verse one. And so what caused it? What got to this point in history that now this dialogue takes place between a desperate man and a God who hears and responds. So um, the author is Habakkuk, and that's literally all we know about him, right? So that part is easy, all right? He isn't named, he isn't mentioned by name elsewhere in the Bible. We're not given a bio about him here in his own book. We know his name, we know he was a prophet, and then we're done. There's nothing else to know about him, but it is virtually um, universally understood that Habakkuk recorded this uh, somewhat, somewhere in the time of 600 to 610 B.C. All right, so about 2,600 years ago, and we'll see why it's basically universally accepted later in the book. Um, I want to talk about what was happening within the nations of Israel and Judah during this time, because I think it's going to add some depth and add some layers to the words we're about to read. So if you back up 400 years from that point to 1000 um, BC, when God appointed his first chosen king, a man after God's own heart, a man named David, uh, the same guy who took down that dude Goliath with a stone and a sling, he goes on, he becomes the first real God-appointed king of israel and everything just kind of goes well he's a warrior he's just taking down armies all around them he unites the 12 tribes of israel into a single strong unified nation really for the first time he goes to this place called jerusalem and says this is going to be our capital and i mean just again just just mowing people down left and right and and now you just have this kind of strong unified nation he hands off the reins to his son named solomon And Solomon is the one to build the mighty temple in the capital of Jerusalem. So he reigns in a time of really peace and prosperity. If there was ever a golden age for Israel, it was during the time of Solomon, right? He had wealth like none other, like blowing your nose with dollar bills kind of wealth, all right? You know what I'm saying? Like carelessly just had so much, you couldn't even measure the uh, level of his riches. But near the end of his reign as king, you start to see some red flags, Solomon's success now becomes kind of the start of the nation's downfall. He, in short, he kind of got lazy. He he got lazy with his worship the nations uh, of Israel begins to allow kind of these other gods in um, because it kind of becomes this mentality, like the more gods, the better, right? like yeah we're down with God who, who saved us out of Egypt, but wait, there's these other gods, and we can kind of supplement this all together. And so what happens is Israel now loses its distinctness as God's people. And when Solomon dies, his moron trust fund children just hate each other. Right I mean, just snobs who just are just fighting for power have nothing with no really good aspects of leadership, and so now the tribes all start to fight from within um, it leads to now a north south split in the nation of Israel, where ten nations to the north retain the uh, ten tribes to the north retain the name Israel, and then two tribes to the south become their own nation called the Judah and Israel is just a mess in the north. I mean wicked king after king after king. And, and, and doing so much just um, wrong in the sight of the Lord. And so you go to 722 BC and Israel gets taken out by a, by a nearby army called Assyria. They come from the east, they just sweep through Israel, take them into captivity. 722, Israel's just done. And Judah in the south is this little, like, two-tribe nation, right, surrounded by superpowers, but they're faring a little bit better. They have some kings who do right in the eyes of the Lord, but, but as time goes, they too just start to drift further and further from the Lord, worshiping other gods, living for themselves, and, and this gets really bad under a king named Ammon. There's a king named Amon, he dies around 640 BC, and his son Josiah takes the throne at the age of eight, all right? Like, you think I'm young as your senior pastor, all right? Like, um, Josiah was a third grader who just became king, all right? And, and like, but listen, as God likes to do, like, he just works in ways you wouldn't think because it goes really well under Josiah. Like, he's actually the one... To turn things around because at age 16, he devotes himself to God and leads Judah into this time of revival, into this time of spiritual reform. And he, you know, the temple at this point that Solomon had built, this big grand temple, it's kind kind of gone to ruins. It's just not even used for worship anymore. It's just kind of gone. Uh, It's become kind of this archaic building in the middle of the capital where he kind of goes in there and says, like, we need to restore this. And in the midst of restoration, uh, a group of people, they find a scroll, right, in like a back filing cabinet in one of the back rooms. And they take out this scroll, and it contains the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that has just gone away for now generations amongst Israel, whole people just growing up, never even seeing the word of God, and Josiah begins to read it, and he weeps, 16 years old, and he brings it to these other leaders, and they start to weep, and they bring it before the people, and there's just a nationwide time of revival, a time of repentance, and they all return to God upon uh, encountering his word, and it just must have been awesome. But here's what happens in the Old Testament. Is that things are going really well and then you turn the page. And what happens in 609 BC is Josiah dies in battle against Egypt. He was a king who said, I'm not just going to send you guys out to the front lines to, to fight. I'm going to disguise myself and fight along with them. Like they know that, he, that the nation would not let him go fight so he dresses up, acts like he's just one of the guys in the front lines, right? Like, like Josiah was William Wallace before there was a William Wallace, all right? If you don't get that reference, ask someone. You have some homework this week and you need to watch a movie, all right? But he is this idea of just, I'm not just going to tell you to go. I'm going to be right side by side with you. And Josiah goes into battle undercover, and he's killed. And in a pattern we've seen before, his sons take over and the son of a righteous king just goes haywire, and he acts more like his wicked grandfather than he does his righteous father. And so, for the next 11 years, Judah just plummets right back into destruction. All the reform, all the revival that they saw under his daddy, Josiah, now just gets to a point where it gets so undone, where the wickedness of Judah is now exceeding the level at which it was before Josiah came to reign. So as quickly as things just were revived, now things are even worse. And that is the world that our man Habakkuk gets a vision and so let's go. That's a long intro into these first four verses, but hopefully it will be proved to be helpful. Now we're ready. Book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. two relationships I want to address this morning that we see in verses 1 through 4 in this intro that I want us to just glean from. Um, first is Habakkuk and God, and then it's Habakkuk and Judah. Alright, so let's start first. Habakkuk and God. Um, think about the whirlwind that this prophet has just been through in recent years. Like, put yourself in his shoes. Judah was far from God. The temple was in virtu- virtual ruins, and in the reign of Josiah, he sees an incredible er- revival in his own nation. Like, one One for the history books. One that would have blown his mind with joy. And then, just as fast as it rises, upon Josiah's death, the moral and religious fabric just begins to unravel. And it descends down even deeper to where it was before. And so we're going to look at kind of why he was just so indignant at that. But before so, I I just want to pause. And I want to recognize what Habakkuk is doing in his relationship to God. So all these things happen, and here is a prophet of the Lord releasing a surge of questions in anguish. He's saying, God, where are you? Like, how can you let this happen? Why are you allowing this? Why aren't you exerting your justice? Can't you even hear me? How long are you going to be silent? I mean, just raw emotion, a surge of questions, and I think at first glance, like, we might read that and go, whoa, not going to end well for Habakkuk, right, like, questioning God like that, like, who does he think he is, right, like, like, we're just going to sit back and go, this is not going to end well, he's going to get in trouble, but, so here's the first thing to note and learn from, Um, This is not a sign of someone who has no relationship with God. But on the contrary, it is evidence of a deep, maturing relationship with God. Because like we began this morning, a a sign of a mature, healthy relationship is this freedom to be honest and let come to the surface what's really in your heart, to not have to fake it. To be vocal about where your heart really is, that is a sign of maturity in a mature relationship. And every believer who is serious about their faith, who loves Jesus, wants to grow in obedience, has this love and affection with his or her Savior, will have moments like this. Where you're going to look up and all the questions are going to come out. What? Why? Where, how long, oh Lord, are you just going to be absent in this? On some level, I think everybody's kind of seeing what happened this past Monday in Las Vegas, and you're just going to go, what? Why? Where? I mean, how? You're just going to, it's just going to, you're not even going to have the words. And and so here's why this is so important for us. The question is not if you will ever have a moment like this, but what will you do when it happens? you kind of have a couple of choices, right? Like I'm sure Habakkuk had. He, he, you could try and act like that. It's just, it's not happening. Like things are not that bad. You could try and just be someone else and, and just be silent with God in that moment. You can be silent with others whom you were in the trenches with in the church and you could put that smile on during the greeting time and say, I'm pretty good, how are you? Life is crumbling, your soul is in pieces and yeah, I'm pretty good, how are you doing? Good. And that is exactly the kind of thing that will stunt your growth into maturity. That is exactly the kind of thing that will limit your relationship with the Lord and limit our relationship with one another. And so it's here where I just, we need to be very nuanced in how we're talking about this, right? I'm not promoting doubt as something to be glorified. I'm not encouraging us just to tell God off at any, at any and every moment, um, as if that's going to grow us into holiness by itself. But when we talk about relating to a sovereign God in prayer, a healthy relationship with God, it can be easily misunderstood and taken to a place it shouldn't, right? That's why Habakkuk is such a difficult book. That's why many of us have probably heard nobody preach through the book of Habakkuk. It's a tough little book. It could be taken to a place it shouldn't, and it's important to be clear here because, listen, the worst and most dangerous kinds of false teaching across church history were the ones that were almost right. The worst and most dangerous kinds of false teaching are the ones that are just a little bit off the mark, and in recent years, I do think there's a dangerous false teaching arising that has gained steam and where doubt becomes glorified and this kind of blurring of truth becomes normal and accepted so this is not saying that God's not to be revered it's not saying that that we that we shouldn't see God as God in fact if you've been around a while if there's one thing hopefully you can kind of um, boil my theology down it's this let's let God be God Let's recapture what it's like to let God be God and his servants faithful. So this is not saying, hey, you don't need to revere God, just tell him off whenever you want. But we also have to understand that this surge of questions from a prophet is in our Bible. In our Holy Spirit-inspired, inerrant Bible. And when we look at the passage next week when God responds, he's not going to condemn Habakkuk for asking these questions. He's not going to condemn him in his raw desperation in this feeling of just immense suffering. And we know that there is a way to cry out to God where you just can't pretend like it's all okay. Where you can't just say, God, I'm pretty good. How are you? And it is crucial for us to be honest in these moments because what happens is when you're honest is that it puts you on a path running toward him. Running toward who he is, looking for answers, clinging to promises, where we will find rest in the midst of chaos. And in doing so, this will grow us into maturity. The alternative to to not dig deeper, to just pretend like everything is fine, that will keep you from moving. That will keep you from going deeper. That will keep you from finding and searching for promises. And ultimately, it will keep you from growing in your faith. And nowhere is this um, idea of asking question in anguish um, uh, something that is is accepted amongst God's people. Nowhere is this more evident than the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, the perfect son of God who was without sin, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't have a weak moment there. He, he didn't slip up. He didn't lose his faith and he wasn't disrespecting his father. It was raw anguish that came out of his soul and it placed him on a path to cling to God's promises, to cling to the father's will to the point where shortly after echoing that question and in his final breaths, he was also able to say, it is finished. It is in the moments of suffering when our feet are flailing when we are in search of solid ground. In search of solid ground to land on and it's in those moments that we can trust that God will lead us to the rock that will be a place where we can land our feet and that will provide rest. So lament that leads to prayer and draws us closer to himself is the pathway to spiritual growth. And we're seeing it on display between Habakkuk and God. So that's relationship number one. Second, Habakkuk and Judah. So, so now we can address, like, what, just, what was it that set Habakkuk off? Like, why is he coming out so hot in this? Where is his anguish rooted in? And uh, in short, it stems from the wickedness of God's chosen people. And it is destroying Habakkuk that God's covenant people, whom he has chosen to dwell in the midst of, to be a witness for the world, have now drifted so far from him. And the words he uses are just aggressive iniquity, violence, destruction. He says the law is paralyzed. Justice, it never happens, it never goes forth. Justice gets perverted. It's this aggressive language to express the lament over God's people, lacking any true reverence for him by the way they live. Judah is just in shambles. They've undone this whole spiritual revival they um, underwent. They've fallen away from their so-called repentance. That happened just 11 years prior. And they are back full throttle into a worship of self, into a worship of false gods, which if you think about it, a worshiping of false gods is really just another way of worshiping yourself. Because you can control those false gods to act how you want them to act to make you happy. And Habakkuk says, when there is no threat of justice, this is important, Where there's no threat of justice, there's no limit where evil can go. This is vital. This is why Habakkuk is crying out to God. He's saying, God, why aren't you dealing with this? How can you tolerate such evil? If there's no justice from you, if there's no fear in them, this will just go on, and it will go on, and it will get worse, and it will get worse. God, act for your name's sake. Because when the threat of justice is gone, there's no limiting evil. This is why people today and across history are... um, if we consider them above the law, right? We, that's a phrase we'll define, that, that these people are above the law and that gets so dangerous because now there's nothing to hold them back. This is why when certain leaders have come into power who faced no justice above them, carnage ensues. Whole nations get, um, have to suffer, and it's just widespread. You have guys like Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Kim Jong-un. When somebody is above the law or makes the law, you can't stop them. You can't limit their evil. So let, let me explain it with something way more simple I think you and I can resume, resonate with. Um, just trying to think about this. When, when there's no threat of justice, there's no stopping us, right? So um, you ever notice when you're on a highway and you pass somebody getting a ticket, a cop hasn't pulled over a couple cops, or you pass an accident and there's a whole bunch of activity there? You ever notice that once you get past that, everyone starts to go a little bit faster? Maybe it's that one the guy who just starts weaving in and out. Maybe that guy's you, all right? That, and, and you ever think about why are they all of a sudden everybody going a little bit faster? Because from their perception, those cops are busy. They're tied up. We just passed them. So the road is clear to go as fast as they want without any fear. That's a small example of when there's no threat of justice, the law becomes useless, Or in Habakkuk's um, way of saying it, the wall becomes paralyzed because the threat of justice is gone. And so this whole nation of Judah and their destruction, it started at the top with a wicked king, and it sets this culture of an entire nation who has no fear for justice. And now they can just do what they want, when they want, without fear, because they think, hey, nothing's happened to us yet, so we can just keep going. And it was killing Habakkuk. It hurt him to see God's name disrespected and denigrated like that amongst his people. And so here's where Habakkuk gets interesting, okay? um, As we seek to apply this today. Um, It is increasingly common with just the social media uprising um, to see Old Testament texts like this talking about unfaithfulness and moral depravity of Israel or judah and then applying it to a country like the united states and and so you see verses taken up like 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 you know uh there's no justice god where are you and we see things we apply it to what's happening in our country and what we see and at first glance we kind of see that we go yeah that fits because um both are nations but that interpretation um in short is is sloppy It fails to understand the difference between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament, the the, the New Testament world that we're still currently living in. Um, Israel and Judah were God's chosen people that he dwelled among in order to be a witness to the world around it. It was a nation through which the promised Messiah would come out of. But when Christ came, and he fulfilled the law by his death and resurrection. He conquered death by making a way for salvation. He then commissioned his followers to go make disciples of all nations. And no longer would God dwell as king amongst a single nation, but now he would dwell amongst anyone who, put, who would put their faith in his son. So, in short, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people was a nation of Israel, but today, God's chosen people is the church. God's chosen people is global. It's not one lineage. It's anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We are all part of his family. We're all part of his people. And so, if we try to apply this passage today, it's not to rail against our culture. It's not to call God to judge the U.S., or God to judge the West, or God to judge a particular nation. And the reason is because implicitly you're looking at the U.S. now as God's chosen people. That is a far, that is a crime amongst the American church, and an allegation that a lot of times is true is that we see anything for God's people and we think that's the U.S., but it's the church. And so we can lament evil we see in our nation, we could see things like happen on Monday and lament and pray and ask God to act, but the response is not to rail against the culture, but rather to reach it with the good news of Jesus Christ. To connect back to our Blueprint series that we wrapped up last week with Christ-centered mission, like that is the mission, this is a passage that should fuel our mission as Grace Church. That the way to cultural renewal is through individual transformation, is by making disciples. It's when people become saved from the inside out through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you have not trusted your life to Jesus Christ, have not put your faith in him as your savior, our message is not, hey, you need to go out and be better. You have to go be a better person because you know what? You could be a better person probably without Jesus and it would do nothing for you in eternity. It's that you need to be a new person. And that is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and putting your belief and faith in him. A faith that will transform you from the inside out where God adopts you into his family, his chosen people, the church. So then for God's people, there's a couple applications here for us. For, for God's church, here's a couple of things to take home. Here's a couple of things to apply to our lives. Um, first, does sin bother us? I want you to think about that. I'm not asking if you know what sin is. My question is, does sin bother us like it bothered Habakkuk? Does a habitual, careless approach of disobedience to God's standard, does that fire us up? Does that bother us? Uh, Especially first in our own lives. And then in the lives of God's people where you see it. Because you know what a very real threat is for us today, 2017, Ridgewood, New Jersey, being a church? You know what's our threat? Is that we are so overexposed to brokenness, so overexposed to moral depravity, that it doesn't even affect us when we see it. And what happens is when it doesn't affect us when we see it, eventually that will turn into not even bothering us when we do it. A breaking of God's rule and rebellion against his reign bothered Habakkuk to the point where he would cry out day and night for God to intervene. And so it should be with us to ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his. Which leads to a second application for us. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4 is an opportunity to repent. Repent. It is an opportunity to repent where there is a difference between our confessional theology and our functional theology. Do you know what I mean by that? Let me explain. Um, Confessional theology is what you say you would believe. If somebody just sat you down and just listed these things and say, do you believe this? What you would say is good and right. What you would say is is the evidence and fruit of a Christian life and what it's like to follow him, right? That, that because Jesus Christ came and laid his life down for me, he's forgiven me of my sins, he's placed me in right standing with the God of the universe, that now I will choose to follow him in all of his ways. I will live a life that is holy in accordance with his moral law. Saying yes to the things God says yes to and that is good and right, and then saying no to the things that he says is destructive and wrong. That would be your confessional theology, what you would say. But functional theology is how you actually live. My actual thoughts my actual motivations, my actions of what my life is saying. And listen, if those two don't line up, it is meaningless what you would confess or say is right if your life contradicts it altogether. All too often, we confess that we hold all things captive to Christ in our life for his glory, but all too often we live in line with what the world's mindset would be, which is summed up by the phrase, if it feels good, it must be right. At least in certain areas of our life, we are prone to drift that way, that that if it feels good, God wouldn't want to keep that from me. If it feels good, he'd want me to have it. If it feels good, he'd want me to live in it, to even celebrate it. And the longer we do it, The more exposed we are to it, and it doesn't even move us, the easier it is to convince ourselves that God must be okay with this. That he also must not think it's a big deal because he hasn't struck me down yet. This is how functional theology gets out of whack. Where we are just prone to say, if it feels good, it must be right. And and that happens in things maybe other people can see. For many of us, it's probably things no one has ever seen. Mary Capalbo, she's one of the members of our Grace blog team, a team that puts out one post a week on the Grace site just with an aim to equip the saints. And she is just a gifted writer, has just spoke meaningfully to me through her posts and to many in our church. Um, She wrote a post in the late summer during that sun and moon eclipse craze. You remember that? Like things just got wild there for about a week. And she made this kind of incredible connection a week later. She wrote this, I have it on the screen, you can follow along. She wrote, Why were we inundated with warnings of severe eye damage if we stared too long at the eclipsed sun? It's because prolonged exposure of the sun to our retinas will cause irreversible damage to our sight. Listen, and the scary part was that we wouldn't feel a thing. This that got me thinking. Scripture is full of similar warnings, but more often than not, we believe what our culture is saying instead. We believe that because we may not feel anything, it's okay. Because others are doing it, it's okay. But is that true? I encourage you to read the rest of her post. But this is the mindset that says, because I don't feel convicted over it, then it must not be wrong. This is the mindset that places us above justice. This is the mindset that renders the law useless or paralyzed because we make the rules. And the point is not uh, that this is just common out in the world and we can rail against them because we're not the world. It's common within the church. Listen, this is my story. This is how I went off the rails for years. I justified a hypocritical, two-faced life because I felt good while doing it. And I knew how to be a Christian around the Christians and I knew the language and I knew what to say and I passed the exam but I wanted to live how I wanted to live. I thought I mastered the game until by God's grace he exposed me and it was agonizing and it was beautiful and I'm grateful he did it. And and so my fear now especially being in full-time ministry is that there are men and women who think they're good with God just because they know the right answers. Because they could even explain the gospel. That they could ace a theology exam if you gave them one, just like I could, just like the people of Judah probably could. They knew everything they needed to know, but their lives did not reflect it one bit. And so, in love, I just need to say this, in a crowd this size, some of you think you mastered the game, like I once did who think you have enough knowledge about God that it doesn't matter how you live for God. And there's a loss of justice, and it's in line with the mindset, if it feels good, it must be right. So my plea from a little intro of a little book called Habakkuk is to allow the Spirit to expose you while there's still time. It's going to be agonizing, and it's going to be beautiful, and you're going to be grateful he did and so the message for all of us is not, hey guys, we got to go out and do better. You have to go home and try harder. The message is, go believe in the one who did better. As God's people, we are cross-driven, not issue-driven. The the way to overcome that habitual, ongoing sin that maybe you're being convicted of right now, maybe others know about it. Again, probably don't know the extent of it. Maybe you've been dealing with it for years, for decades. The, The way to overcome it is not to stare at it. It's not to wrestle it and overcome it. It's to stare at the cross where victory lies. It's where Jesus paid for that where he has freed you into a life that can be free from that, free from sin. It's where, it's, it's, it's where God has opened the gate to the jail and you're still sitting in the back. He goes, you don't have to pick the lock. The door is open. You're free from that. It's at the cross where victory lives. and It's where faith grows deeper and grows into maturity. There is freedom and power in the name of Jesus Christ. And so let our lament turn into a prayer. Let our prayer as believers and as a church bring us deeper into the character and nature of God, and let us find true joy in Him where we can say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Uh, especially thank you for the word that is weighty. I pray that it would be a a burden that produces joy that only your word can. I pray for those in here who are convicted, who are feeling convicted, that Lord, the same word that you convicted them with, that now you would provide assurance in Jesus Christ. We thank you for how two-edged this Bible is, that the same word that wounds us is the same word word that heals us, that the same word that diagnoses our problem also gives us the treatment. Father, let us cling to that this week. Let us all in unison be able to say, because of what Jesus Christ has done, it is well. And let that be the motivation for us to live the way you've called us to live. It's for your name's sake we pray. Amen.